Hello and welcome to the 32nd episode of the CCGI podcast. Our last episode featured Dr. Heather Holman. We discussed Dr. Holman's role in appraising the recent CCGI guidelines summary for physical activity throughout pregnancy. We also discussed her master's degree program and recent publication. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Paul Bruno. Dr. Bruno obtained his Bachelor of Human Kinetics from the University of British Columbia and graduated from CMCC in 2004. He was a research fellow and lecturer at the Anglo-European College of Chiropractic in the United Kingdom from 2004 to 10, during which time he received his PhD from the University of Portsmouth in 2008. Since 2010, he's been He's held an academic appointment at the Faculty of Kinesiology and Health Studies at the University of Regina, a term that included an appointment as the CCRF Research Chair in Neuromusculoskeletal Health. His research focuses on the diagnosis and treatment of motor control impairments in individuals with low back pain. Welcome to the show, Paul. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, now, you and I have a mutual interest in, in Star Wars, so I wanted to start immediately with a question on Star Wars. Um, you, you teach anatomy at U of R, and um, I know one of the things that you frequently do is put a bonus question um, on your exams relating to Star Wars. What's, what's the best question, or what's your favorite response that you've got out of, out of students over the years? Well, I normally put um, like multiple choice questions related to Star Wars as uh, bonus questions at the end of all my exams. It's a way to encourage um, students in the next generation to to uh, watch the original Star Wars trilogy. Uh, it came to my attention a number of years ago that most of them hadn't when I was making kind of references to Star Wars in my classes and uh, a lot of students weren't getting them. So that's why I uh, do it. But probably my favorite uh, question that I've used so far is um, the last couple of years for one of my uh, senior level classes, it's a smaller class, uh, not as many students. So I started having the final exams for that class uh, in the regular lecture hall as opposed to like the gym with other uh, classes. So that's why I haven't been able to do this for any of my other classes because you can't do this in a gym where there's other profs and other uh, classes there. Uh, but what I have them do is, or what I uh, put in the exam is um, that I guess I have to kind of, kind of like explain this. So uh, any fans of the Star Wars uh, universe or Star Wars um, movies will know Admiral Ackbar um, from like Return of the Jedi his, was his first like appearance. And he's uh, relatively famous for some reason for one uh, simple three-word phrase, and that's it's a, a trap. And so I make a lot of references and jokes about Admiral Ackbar saying it's a, a trap. And so what I did was I, I put a, a question or a sort of statement in there saying that if anybody during the exam stands up and in a reasonable impression of Admiral Ackbar says it's a, a trap, everyone in the class will get an extra you know, bonus mark. And so both the times that I've done that, uh, somebody has stood up. The first time I did it, somebody stood up four minutes into the exam, which I thought was kind of quick, but um, <laughs> they, obviously, they obviously saw it quite early on. And then uh, just this past fall, somebody did it in uh, two and a half minutes. So <laughs> I was always kind of hoping that they wouldn't see that until later on in the exam and just halfway through somebody stands up and does it. So maybe I have to bury the question a little bit more. Either that or they're, scan they're scanning the exam for it. Yeah, or something. Yeah, maybe they heard about it the first time. Like, where is it? Where is it? Oh, here it is. Okay, yeah. So. Oh, that's so fantastic. Where were profs like you when I was a student? <laughs> you got to have fun. You got to have fun. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask you how, how life has been for you. I know you're, you're a BC Lions fan. How is it being the only Lions fan in the province of Saskatchewan? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think I can I can best probably answer this by I guess giving a little story about when I uh, interviewed for my uh, position here. Um, so when I was getting ready 
uh, for the interview, uh, my father-in-law had was uh, giving me some advice about things to say, things to do or not do in the interview. And one of the things he said was, when you're there, do not make any negative comments or jokes about the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. If you do, you will not get the job. And I said, well, come on, they can't take it that seriously, right? And he said, no, no, you have no idea that because he lived here for, I think it was 10 or 15 years when he was younger. Um, and he's a big sort of Riders fan. Um, and so, but he said, no, no, if, like, seriously, people there take it way more seriously than you can, than you can like imagine. And he's absolutely right. So in the interview, in the formal interview uh, session, when I was sitting around the table with the interview uh, committee, um, near the end of it, one of the uh, committee members said to me, so you're from uh, BC originally. And I said, yes. And he said, so is it safe to say you're like a BC Lions fan? And I kind of paused and I'm thinking, "Uh oh, here we go. And so I'm, I'm not going to lie in the interview. So I said, yes. And he said, so how are you going to handle being a BC Lions fan here in the uh, heart of Rider Nation? And I just said, quietly. And that's how I've kind of dealt with it. <laughs> I, just, I just go about my business. I, 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 I cheer very loudly when I'm watching the Lions in the comfort of my own home. But outside of home, I generally don't <laughs> comment on anything. I just let it go. <laughs> That's so. uh, self-preservation. I like it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you and I have known each other for quite a while, and I remember you when you were, you know, fresh, clean-shaven baby face. But uh, now your beard has grown to be what I consider to be possibly the greatest beard in chiropractic um, since Dee Dee Palmer. How how's it coming? It's uh, getting there. It's getting there. It's uh, almost down to like my belly button now. So I'm uh, I'm hoping to get it down to my waist at some point, but that's entirely up to the beard. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it definitely grew a lot faster the first year. And then the last probably, I guess, eight months, nine months, it's kind of really slowly inching its way down. So um, yeah, we'll see how long it'll it'll go. I'm not sure if there is like a limit on how, how far it'll go, but we'll see. Is it a lot of work or is it just wash and wear? Uh, well, I make uh, homemade uh, beard balm, which is because I used to buy stuff, but it got so expensive because um, of stuff you get in the stores. Uh, yeah, it it just got to be too too like expensive. So I started looking up recipes online, and uh, yeah, you just essentially melt a bunch of butters and uh, um, like beeswax and other like essential oils and stuff. You just mix them into a pot and boil them, or not boil them up, but just uh, melt them all together and then put it into a little tin and. So I use that after a shower, like I kind of dry off the beard and then put it in. Helps to keep the hair healthy. Well, that's, probably enough. <laughs> that's probably enough interrogating you about my interests. I, <laughs> that's I, I, it's going to be impossible for me to follow up that, those questions. <laughs> but but uh, let, let's let's uh, veer in a different direction for <laughs> a moment here. Um, sure. I, I, I really want to ask you about um, an article you published in Manual Therapy in 2014. Uh, to our listeners, it's titled uh, Patient Reported Perception of Difficulty as a Clinical Indicator uh, of Dysfunctional Neuromuscular Control During the Prone Hip Extension Test and Active Straight Leg Raise Test. Uh, and for our listeners, we'll, we'll link that in, in the description of, of this episode so you can uh, view that. Um, but since these are common clinical tests, uh, how can abnormal lumbopelvic motion patterns or, or patient reported perception of difficulty performing those movements uh, inform their treatment plan uh, and inform your work as a clinician? Well, I think it's, um, in order to answer that, kind of have to look at how these tests have evolved uh, over the years. So the uh, pronip extension test 
uh, it was originally described by um, Vladimir Yonda, who um, I, I would assume uh, most of your uh, listeners have have uh, heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I actually saw uh, him speak. I remember when I was in first year at CMCC, um, he actually came in and he had a very um, thick Czech accent. And I had no idea who he who he who he was at, at the at the time. I was just struggling to try to understand what he was saying. And then looking back on it, I thought, geez, I was in the same room with this guy, and I had I, had, I did not like appreciate that wow. at that at that uh, time. But um, yeah, so in, in his original descriptions of the uh, test, uh, he was suggesting that there is a normal order of activation. So when you ask somebody to lie on their front and lift their leg up behind their back, that there's a normal order of activation. Um, within the uh, gluteus maximus, the hamstrings, and your uh, back muscles. Um, and that anything that deviates away from that, and he kind of listed certain abnormal patterns, that that's in, an indication of uh, dysfunctional motor control, and um, that needs to be uh, treated. Um, around the time that I started my PhD in the um, in, in like the UK, um, Greg Lehman, who was uh, another former grad of uh, CMCC, he published a paper um, looking at the activation patterns um, of, of people doing a prone hip extension and uh, suggesting that there actually isn't a normal activation pattern. And so that became kind of the, I guess, the like inspiration for my, my studies that formed my uh, PhD. So I kind of um, you know, dove a little bit deeper into that and kind of confirmed that, yeah, there, there really isn't a normal order of activation. Um, during my PhD time, um, Don Murphy also and uh, other 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 like individuals also published a study that were suggesting that rather than looking at the motor patterns, uh, the uh, muscle recruitment strategies, people should look at the uh, quality of the movement. So, how does the back essentially remain stable and uh, neutral during the test, or does it are there sort of deviations in terms of the back, either like hyperextending or um, laterally flexing or sort of you know, rotating during the test? And so um, that's, I mean, I'm not sure if it's, if the test is still taught in terms of um, trying to teach clinicians to either observe or uh, palpate certain orders of activation. Uh, if that is the case, I would uh, um, you know, suggest that there's now quite a bit of evidence suggesting that that's not like an appropriate use of the test. Um, and so uh, if anything, you should be looking at kind of the quality of the movement of it. Um, so that's, I mean, one way of, of how that test has like evolved. Um, with the active straight leg raise test, uh, it's it's kind of similar in the sense that you're asking a person to lie down this time on their back and you lift, have the, them lift their leg up off the bench uh, in like a flexion movement. Um, but that test was originally designed, um, I think it was around 2000, 2001 was when the first papers about this test came out. Um, and it was originally uh, described as being useful for women with uh, pregnancy-related pelvic pain. Um, and there actually isn't a lot of research on the use of this test in people with uh, nonspecific back pain, so in males or in people with nonspecific back pain. Um, so, uh, but the the most of the descriptions of that test, again, you're not looking at the quality of the movement or the motor recruitment strategies. It's simply asking the patient to... Um, uh, rate their uh, perceived difficulty in uh, performing the movement on a zero to five scale. Um, and so that kind of, when I was reading some of these papers and things, I started thinking about, you know, there's whether, you know, patient reported perception of difficulty would be interesting or would it be useful in the uh, pronip extension test or not. Um, nothing's been published on that really, other than the, 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 the couple studies that I published on that. Um, and the other kind of like limitations on both of those tests is that there's kind of limited 
um, um, evidence that because what Yonda originally was uh, suggesting with like the prone up extension test is that how you control the hip extension during uh, during that test is going to simulate or replicate what you do during the hip extension phase of gait. And if anybody's actually kind of looked at or um, understands the 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 normal gait patterns, which are fairly well established, that's highly unlikely to be the case because. Um, you know, one's an open, one's an open kinetic chain, one's a closed kinetic chain, one's weight bearing, one's non-weight bearing. Um, so you would just think that the the motor control strategies would have to be very different, and the normal motor recruitment patterns that humans use during gait also suggest that that's probably not the case. But nobody's ever actually, I guess, uh, published anything on that. So there are certain limitations about how the tests. Um, have been described and continue to be described in like the literature. Um, but in general, the way that I kind of use the tests clinically um, and the way that the, I, I think that there is some evidence to uh, suggest is that you should, when you're, when you are doing the test on asking a patient to do either of those two tests, look at the quality of the movement um, and then ask them to rate their uh, difficulty again, using a zero to five scale. And you can use, that bits of information to look at, you know, whether there's any motor control impairments that could potentially inform uh, rehab uh, exercise, you know, serving, um, serving a prescription for the for the uh, patient. Well, that's that's great, and that's I think that's really good advice for our for our listeners. Um, what what else are you working on, and like kind of current pro- projects or interests in your lab these days? Well, one one um, sort of major project we've been had going the last couple of years is um, actually answering some of the questions that I just uh, mentioned about both of those tests. So as I mentioned, you know, there's um, you know there's sort of limited work on specific um, abnormal, if you want to use that word, abnormal um, sort of movement patterns associated with those tests um, that would be common in people with back pain. Um, so which which types of movement patterns would you want to look for um, and how can that inform? So this study is it's kind of a large um, uh, project with several kind of, I guess, sub projects or sub analyses that we're what we're, we're doing. But what we're doing is we're using motion capture uh, technology, which is um, where you put little markers on uh, the person's body on certain segments you're interested in. So for us, it's the back, it's the pelvis, it's the um, thighs and legs. Um, and then um, you have these cameras which can track the uh, movement of those markers. And then you can use that information to then model the various segments. So model the pelvis, model the back, um, and then calculate uh, joint kinematics. So you know how much uh, lumbar extension is there, how much hip flexion is there, that kind of thing. So we're using motion capture as well as like electromyography or uh, EMG, which then records uh, muscle activity in certain muscles. So um, we have a system that can simultaneously collect both of those uh, uh, pieces of data. Uh, and so we can then actually correlate, you know, when, when they're in a certain phase of the movement, what's happening with the muscles, how are they actually activating? So what we're looking at is we're um, taking in people that have uh, subacute and chronic back pain, um, asymptomatic controls, and then looking at are there certain patterns. Um, so we're going to use some you know, cluster analysis and that kind of thing to look at are there certain patterns that um, distinguish um, people with back pain from those who don't. And hopefully, are there sort of subgroups within people with back pain? Are there certain movements that, you know, certain people with back pain demonstrate? And then 
um, you know, again, indicating, you know, dysfunctional motor control and then, you know, potentially giving uh, some of your clinicians more information about if you are going to have them do this test, these are the patterns that really seem to be problematic or that you should really be looking for. Um, and then that would eventually then lead into uh, further studies where once we know which patterns are are indicative of, of, of abnormal motor control, um, can we then change those? Can we then restore normal motor control with things like uh, rehab exercises and, and other types of treatment? So that in, in a nutshell is, oh, and also we're looking at gait as well. So we're looking at trying to compare the patterns that are used during the test to those that are used during gait to actually, I guess, confirm or you know refute whether these patterns do in fact replicate those during gait as was suggested by uh, Yonda and others. Have you, have you noticed any difference in uh, any difference in in groups uh, like say flexion intolerant people or, or extension intolerant people um, in in the back pain groups? Have you seen any difference? We haven't looked at that specifically. We are looking at um, so part of this part of the intake for people with uh, back pain is I use um, certain clinical uh, testing protocols to try to determine whether. Um, their pain seems to be more uh, lumbar related. So coming from the lumbar spine versus SI joint or uh, pelvic related. Um, okay. So we are separating um, the patients based on that, but I haven't, I haven't looked at flexion intolerant versus um, like extension intolerant patients yet, but that would be something to also look at is, you know, you can kind of look at different, um, you know, some of your clinical subgroups and see if those different groups you know, do they uh, perform the test differently? So those are just the two that we kind of focused on was lumbar versus SI. But okay. I mean, you certainly could, you know, try to differentiate other types of uh, patients as well. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fascinating to hear that you're, you're subgrouping them into those two. Cause clinically, I mean, that's, that's a huge part of what we're what you see, you know, it's, it's SI pelvic related, uh, low back pain and lumbar related low back pain as well. And, and quite often respond differently. I find in practice. So yeah, and I think it also goes back to the original kind of theoretical frameworks for these tests. I mean, uh, Yonda was using the pronip extension test for uh, back pain, like lumbar-related back pain generally, whereas the ASLR test is, you know, um, generally described as relating to SI joint uh, laxity mm -hmm. um, or SI joint issues. So that's what kind of spurred me to think about, well, you know, is that actually the case? Like, are there actually differences that if you were to subgroup these patients based on their uh, clinical diagnoses or uh, clinical, you know, sort of, you know, clinical indicators, does that actually, is that actually like associated with, with differences between these different subgroups in, in terms of how they move during one or one or both of the tests? Interesting. And, and, and I know we've talked a bit about how clinicians can evaluate um, those on the public motor control impairments. Um, I was hoping you could let us know if there's anything else uh, you can think of to that clinicians could use to evaluate these impairments or um, ways they can improve their patients, um, you know, motor control impairments uh, in everyday practice. Yeah, I mean, there's other tests out there, like there's the like McGill instability test, it's called, um, or the like prone instability test. Um, there's some literature on that. There are certain like clinical prediction rules um, and other. Um, sort of clinical protocols that have been described in the uh, literature, um, like by like O'Sullivan, Peter O'Sullivan from like Australia. Um, he's done quite a bit of work in that area too. Um, in terms of different protocols and different testing procedures you can use to um, suggest certain, you know, types of motor control impairments and then how that can inform clinical um, some of your decisions there. Um, so I use some of those in my practice. I mean, in, 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 in like addition to my research and my uh, teaching duties, I also, um, uh, practice here at the, at 
at the uh, school. Um, and so I have a practice up in our, uh, in our, one of our sort of health centers. Um, so, I mean, I do use some of those, some of those protocols and, and in, in fact, the pronip extension test and the ASLR test in some of my patients as well. Um, again, you're kind of looking for, you know, what is, I guess, considered, you know, and again, you have to kind of keep a, take it with a grain of salt and that there's maybe, you know, for some of the protocols and the procedures, there's, you know, some evidence to support other ones. It's more kind of theoretical still at this point. Um, but, you know, kind of looking for dysfunctional motor control strategies, are there certain movements that sort of triggered the pain and, you know, why is that, what type of movement? So you're talking about, you know, earlier, you know, flexion intolerant versus extension intolerant, you know, you can look at, at those kind of things, um, to help inform, you know, types of, I guess, exercises or types of therapy or, um, sort of movement, you know, prescriptions that you can give patients to try to overcome some of those or try to restore normal motor control. Um, the pronip extension test and the SLR test, the way that I use it clinically, and again, there's some evidence to uh, support this being used, but there's also kind of answers that need to be, um, you know, gained before you can kind of confirm this. But the way that I use them is with like the pronip extension test, I ask somebody to do the to do the test, and I look at the back and see does it remain, you know, relatively neutral or does it start to deviate around, sort of like what uh, Don Murphy uh, suggested. Um, but I also get the patient to rate their difficulty. So on a scale from zero to five, um, you know, how, how difficult is it? Zero being it's not difficult at all. Five being they, you know, they, they actually can't do the movement at all, which, you know, would almost never be the case. But I guess if you have somebody in really like acute back pain, then that might be the case. Um, and so if I see deviations or if I, if they, I mean, this is again, just my own sort of personal way that I use the test, but if they score either leg at being a two out of five or higher, um, then I usually prescribe these, you know, cross crawl exercise, which is person on all fours. Um, I think like Stu McGill describes it in his book. I know it's called different, different names and in, in different books and things, but they're on all fours and they're essentially having to raise their arms and legs, um, one at a time off of the floor, uh, or yeah, so that they're kind of having to balance themselves with a, with a smaller, um, sort of base of uh, support while they're trying to maintain a, a sort of neutral back, uh, posture. Um, and so again, because that's what you're looking for during the test, then you're kind of training that. Um, whereas with the active straight leg raise test, same thing, ask them to do it, look for any uh, pelvic movement. So does the pelvis start to like rotate when they're uh, doing it again, asking them to rate their uh, perceived difficulty. And again, if I see any abnormal pelvic movement, or if I, if they rate it at a two or higher on either leg, then I give the uh, dead bug exercise. I think it's called a few other things too, but where they're lying on their back and they're essentially moving their arms and legs while they're trying to maintain a neutral uh, pelvic posture. So. That's fantastic. And, and do you find um, do you find that these patients often need to progress from these exercises to a, a different, um, uh, you know, a, a different uh, or more challenging uh, version or variation as time goes on? Yeah. So what you do, I mean, usually with uh, both of these, the first the first stage of both of these exercises is getting somebody to be able to essentially adopt the posture, like adopt the starting test posture, and uh, contract their core. Um, they're like abdominal and their uh, back muscles while being able to breathe. Some patients have a real difficulty in terms of engaging their core while still breathing normally. They have to, you know, if they, if they want to engage their core, they'll kind of bear down and hold their breath. 
Um, and so you want them to, you know, um, have those muscles contracted while they're breathing. And then there's various stages. If you look in, you know, Stu McGill's book, books, um, there's other sort of stages that you can do to, again, you know, progress the uh, difficulty of it. So you start off at a, at a kind of a, again basic, easy level. And then when they can do that, then you advance them, advance them. And then once they can do the more advanced stages of that, then it's about essentially trying to maintain that core during certain more functional activities. Yeah. So during a squat, during a squat movement or asking them like what kind of movements aggravate your pain, either at home or at work, and then trying to get them to simulate those when they're training. So if somebody who has to bend over and, you know, or not bend over, but who has to do a lot of lifting at, at, at their, at their job or certain types of activities at uh, home that would aggravate it again, simulating those while they're engaging their core. So getting them to kind of groove those patterns that they, their body automatically starts to contract when they start to do these movements. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for, for elaborating on that. I mean, that's something I'm going to be taking to practice this afternoon and <laughs> hopefully our listeners will, yeah. will take right away and use, use in practice. Great. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that was outstanding. Thanks. Uh, we really appreciate this, Paul. Uh, it was great to have you with us today. Uh, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in and we're, we'll look forward to bringing you our next guest in a couple of weeks. Uh, bye for now.